I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Nicholas Timmins. I'm the public policy editor of the Financial Times. And with me today is a three-generation medical family. There is Dame Margaret Turner Warwick, who qualified as a doctor in 1950, and thus was a medical student on the wards in July 1948 when the National Health Service came into existence. She went on to become the first woman president of the Royal College of Physicians, indeed the first female president of any of the medical royal colleges. Alongside her is her daughter, Lynn Turner-Stokes, who qualified in 1979 and is now Professor of Rehabilitation Medicine at King's College London. The third is Tabitha Turner-Stokes, Lynn's daughter and Margaret's granddaughter, who just this week completed her final examinations at University College Hospitals London to become a doctor. And we're here to talk about, obviously, 60 years of the National Health Service. And the obvious place to start is its, its history and its launch, Margaret. I mean, you must remember it coming into existence. Yes. There were, in fact, great divides in the medical profession. The BMA, uh, which was particularly the general practitioners, was uh, very sceptical. And uh, particularly, they were afraid of uh, the erosion of their medical independence mm. and the consultants were rather different. They were divided. Some of them were afraid uh, that uh, it would uh, inhibit their <coughs> private practice and their money. But a lot of the ex-service people coming back at that time were desperate for jobs. They'd been used to uh, discipline in the armed forces, and they were very much in favour of it. And, of course, many doctors during the war had worked with the Medical Emergency Service Lastly, many of the consultants worked with, for no pay at all at voluntary hospitals. Their entire earnings were in private practice. If they were to be offered some remuneration for the work they were doing in the hospital service, uh, they were not altogether against it. Mm, very attractive. And when you look back at medicine then, and medicine mm. now, what you could do as a doctor mm. in, in 48-50, yeah. I mean, that must have been when the first antibiotics were arriving. Of course, the... Medical advances have been absolutely huge and immense. And perhaps the most dramatic example is actually tuberculosis, mm. with this immense service that was built up to deal with all these chronic and continually ill patients, when in 1952, suddenly, there was a cure. Can you recall, in a sense, what was the most advanced thing you could do when you qualified? Well, that's really interesting. One of the most dramatic things was just the very, very beginning of open-heart surgery. And in order to get them cold enough, because uh, cardiac bypass hadn't been invented then, they used to put them in a bath uh, full of ice and cool them down that way. Gosh, almost sounds like leeches, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, how do you think the profession and its relations with the health service have changed over the years? To begin with, uh, the role of the doctor was dominant, and they were assisted by a very small team of administrators. Mm. Then, I suppose, in the 60s, 70s, was the time that 
management began to become more important and strengthened. Mm. Right. And, and then we went through this sort of period of consensus management, which, which turned mm. out to be the lowest common denominator or no decision at all, because everybody had a veto. But for a lot of doctors, they kind of opted out of being involved, opted out of medical management, and then complained about the results mm. and said it's all the manager's fault. Linda, is that a story that sort of... Yes and no. I mean, I think, I think that all the way through there have been doctors who've been yeah, involved with, with management, as you say, honourable exceptions. But there was a clear move uh, to say that doctors were too powerful in determining what should happen and having the, the ultimate high moral ground of saying, I'm going to do this for my patient because this is what I believe is best for them, regardless yeah. of, of yeah. cost. Um, but uh, there, there's always been this tension that if you're going to try and deliver a health service that's free at the point of delivery for everybody, regardless of means based on a you know, a really small percentage of the GDP, then you've really got a, um, a challenge in terms of being able to provide that and keep it within costs. And I think that that's been a, um, a challenge for a lot of doctors who, you know, perhaps better aware of the limitations of the evidence than uh, some of the managers who will just stick on what those grade A recommendations for and leave it at that. Yeah. And, and sort of running through this is a sort of tension, not just in the National Health Service. These days it comes mm. with being in any medical yes. organisation anywhere in the world. Tabitha, you're about to qualify. How does that, mm. Tabitha, how does that, how does that look to you compared to how it may have looked to Margaret when she qualified? What I can see certainly happens in an everyday setting on the wards is that there is this constant conflict. I can't see how that conflict would ever disappear. I mean, mm. there's always the added conflict of government policy that mm. constantly changes and there's constantly new targets something that uh, I, I nodded when um, my grandmother was saying that um you know that's something that didn't have in the past yeah poor manager is twixt a rock and a hard place because he's got to manage the doctors on the one hand and work with them and he's got to watch his back with the politicians and government mm. on the other mm. in fact i think i've seen in recent years doctors and managers really ganging up and getting together a bit to try and um, have a stronger say in uh, some of the pressures imposed by by the politicians. The other bit of continuity is, is, or discontinuity, is, is sort of societal changes that affect medicine. Mm. So, I mean, when, 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 you, when you were a house officer, how mm. much time off did you get? Well, that's a very interesting thing. We didn't get any time off. Uh, as I mean, when I was houseman, you, I had one night off in six months. You were on duty every weekend? I was on, no, I was on all the time, 24 hours a day, yeah. for six months, bar one night. Right. One of my favourite patients died on the night that, uh, one, I don't know, um, favourite one, that mm-hmm. we had most particularly challenging one um, on the night I was off, so it's written yeah. <laughs> indelibly on me. But the point really was that that's, that wasn't as stress-making and that outrageous as the EU would have you believe mm-hmm. because we had a very small number of patients. The continuity of care, you knew those patients so well, mm. you knew what was going to happen to each one at the night or the day. Yeah. So the whole setup of support was vastly better, I believe, mm-hmm. actually one way and another. Yeah although sometimes a bit unorthodox, yeah. uh, than, than, than it is now. And I believe that a lot of the problems of the long hours is the stress and anxiety of young doctors 
working a little bit beyond their competence because nobody else around. Tabitha, can you imagine having one night off in six months? I absolutely couldn't imagine getting one night off in six months mm. because that night, you know, all the other nights other than that night would be horrendous. Mm. Whereas I think in the past, mm. yes, I'm sure you were very tired and sleep deprived, but it wasn't the horrendous. I mean, the horrendous experience absolutely. I've certainly when I've shadowed. I mean, I'll have this pleasure when I when I start working in in August. But I've shadowed a lot of people at night, and it is. It's absolutely. I'm I'm not exaggerating. Mm. It is really horrendous, and there's just so few of you. And you just don't know the patients, and it's unsafe. It's, I was going to say, it sounds dangerous. Absolutely dangerous, and everyone thinks it's dangerous. This is the, this is the problem. I think one of the things that certainly I've seen a lot of patients complain about, and a lot of the fuel for a lot of the newspaper disaster stories that come out of patients' experience in hospitals, mm. not just as inpatients, but patients' experience with the administrative end of hospitals, like outpatient appointments, getting to and from hospitals, transport issues, and so on. I think a lot of the the fuel that comes out of those patients saying, you know, oh, there was needles on the floor and there was, you know, Mm. it was really dirty. My cabinet was really dirty. The cleaners never came by. And I think that a lot of it stems, I'm sure a lot of that's that's true. And again, it goes down Mm. to inadequate funding, I think. But but a lot of it, I think, comes from patients' general experience and attitudes towards hospital. They just don't feel cared for. Mm. Cleanliness is a really interesting mm. one, particularly with everybody now being aware of MRSA. I was saying the other night, um, uh, one of the first reasons when I knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was about three years old um, was because I knew when, when I was taken to hospital for, you know, to meet up with, with, with mum or dad in the evening we were doing something or was, was always that that lovely smell of disinfectant as he walked in. <laughs> just it was just wonderful i knew that's where i wanted to be and you know recently um you know you haven't you haven't smelt that smell when you go into hospitals um and i was just walking into my hospital the the other day and all of a sudden you get this lovely smell of disinfectant because they've suddenly discovered it again now <laughs> and it's exactly the same smell as it used to be and you it's like coming home really yeah. Um, but you know, for years we didn't we didn't use disinfectant. I think mm. it was decided that it was it was wrong. And women in medicine. <laughs> Ignore gender. I just I'll just ask the question. I mean, how's that changed? Well, how's it changed? The it was relatively easy to get into Oxford in nineteen forty three, but getting onto the women's quota, which was seven percent, <laughs> um, was was a tricky business. Yeah. Uh, so that really says it all at that time. Was this the women's quota to get into Oxford at all, or to do medicine? To do medicine. To a large extent, I think, you can ignore gender. And the more you do, the better, as mm. I don't think it should be mm. a, a thing. But again, history, you, you asked for. In the 1960s, if you wanted to get on to, uh, as a woman, onto a teaching hospital, was was very difficult. Mm. But that's for you to ignore gender, which is not the same as the other... No, but if yeah. you ignore gender, right. then they'll ignore gender. If you start pu- uh, pulling on the tears and mm. all that business, mm. uh, that's where you get into trouble. What do you think? I was very fortunate in having lots of family uh, support and spent all my um, all, all my taxed um, salary for years on, on, a, on a nanny, a live-in nanny, who would just be there so I didn't have to, to worry about... Uh, inconveniences like babies um, <laughs> and uh, uh, no I went back to work when both of them were three months old yeah. because um, that was the uh, that was the only 
the only thing to, to, to do and I've always worked full time um, and I think because of doing that I haven't come across any kind of um, uh, adverse effect of, of, of being a woman but I think had I gone part time or you know wanted special concessions then I would have been treated differently yeah. and and I have to say, quite mm. quite right. <laughs> and and I think I'm mm. I'm a bit tough on my women mm. colleagues. Actually, mm. I think it's one of the things we have to sort of bite the bullet about. Mm. And there's a there's a there's a choice. I think that we have. And you know, one can either choose to be a womany woman mm. and do womany things, mm-hmm. or you can be a non-womany woman mm-hmm. um, and 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 expect to be able to be accorded the same. Privileges yeah. as 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 non women. Right, and Tabby, now now you know seven percent when mm-hmm. Margaret's doing it. Now we're in a majority. <laughs> yes, yeah, so my... and 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 what about the womanly woman? I think there are actually some advantages, tiny little things. Advantages of being a woman, actually, uh, as a student, particularly in this day and age with chaperones and things like that. I think you get a lot more opportunities. Uh, actually, as a, as a lot of the um, men that I've worked with find it a lot harder um, just getting clinical experience. But I think that's a student thing rather mm. than a professional thing because obviously when you're qualified and you're professional, it's your job. Um, the womanly woman thing and the and the manly woman thing. I mean, I I totally agree. I think mm. I think I'm absolutely for uh, women having equal rights, and I think you know obviously men and women in a profession that's as big and as broad as medicine I think there's a big place for both yeah but I think you can only women can only say that and and have the equal opportunities if you can also put in the equal amount of time Mm. and unfortunately just because of the fact that we can have kids and men can't Mm. that is there's nothing you can do to change that so I mean I agree I have the same attitude Um, I would very much like to have a family and children I also remain uh, very committed to my career in medicine and I would hopefully be able to mix those two as effectively mm. as um, my grandmother mm. and my mum have done because I think mm. they've both done it extremely mm. effectively but I'm sure it's very hard Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt Now imagine them getting even softer over time That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets In a recent customer survey 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.